You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Today's teaching text comes from Mark 10, verses 46 through 52. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city of blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and called, said, call him. So they called to, to the blind man, cheer up. On your feet, he's calling, calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want to do for me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This is the word of the Lord. We believe it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the baptisms that we've had an opportunity to celebrate, for the music. Thank you for the band who sacrifices their time each week and, uh, and, and to lead us in those songs. And now we thank you for the scriptures, uh, which we know are active and, and living. And we pray that you would use this time, uh, God, through your Holy Spirit to open up our eyes to open up our hearts, to see you, Jesus, as you really are. And as a result, we know that that will transform us from the inside out. Do this, Lord, in a way that's good for us and glorifying the units in Christ. And I pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Back in 2021, uh, this grace, uh, or this church graciously sent me and my family on a three-month sabbatical. And we did lots of great, memorable things over those three months. But one of the things that uh, I will probably always remember is that we decided as a family to start a garden. And when I say a garden, I'm talking like 30 by 100 foot garden. And uh, I think we have a picture of this I can throw on the screen for you. But uh, we started uh, with these little bitty seeds in a greenhouse that Randy Rogers actually helped me build. Believe it or not, imagine me and Randy building a greenhouse. It actually happened. Um, and so we built this greenhouse and, and we started these seeds in the soil and we watered the seeds and we fertilized the seeds. And eventually they grew, as you see here, these are tomato plants. We planted 100 tomato plants all kinds of okra, green beans, I mean, you name it, squash, cucumbers, we had it out there. You didn't know I was quite the farmer, quite like you, huh, Greg? And so, uh, but here's what I realized. Um, just because that you get these plants out into the field doesn't mean that your work is done. In fact, whenever you get them transplanted into the field, really the work has just begun because now they're, they're out of this safe environment in the greenhouse and they're in the harsh elements, right? There's, there's extreme heat or there's uh, too much rain or not enough rain. There's pests, there's disease, there's, there's animals. And so if you want to take care of these plants, you have to give them constant attention. You have to nurture and kind of baby them and check on them often. And if you do that, as we did, go to the next slide, you'll see that eventually you get a harvest. Right? You get a fruit. This is uh, my wife and my two kids and actually three kids. There's one in the very back. That's Moses. I think he's licking the concrete or something like that. And so, but that's what we get, right? You, you get a harvest. You produce fruit. 
And as I thought about this image of guarding, I thought, man, that really is the image of the Christian life. That is an image of what the church is meant to be, in that all of us are meant to be spiritual gardeners. The Bible actually, believe it or not, calls you, if you're a Christian, you are a priest. I'm not the only priest in the room. We are all called to minister to one another, to care for one another, to nurture one another in such a way that we actually help one another grow up and mature and produce an abundance of fruit that Jesus says in John 15 gives glory to God. And this is something that all of us need. Like, like as we've been saying, like we are a church filled with wounded sinners. What does that mean? That means that even this past week, we have all sinned and we've all been sinned against. We all walk into this room with with trauma and with transgressions, with kind of these relational sores, these these spiritual sins, and and because all right, we need healing. We need one another to care, to to nurture, right, to come alongside the other person and love each other in such a way that we can become healthy and happy and whole. Question is, how do we do this? How does this go from just like practical, you know, from pie in the sky idea to actually happening in real life? And in order to answer that question, I want to look back at our text in Mark chapter 10. Starting in verse 46, here's what we read. It says, And they came to Jericho, as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city. A blind man named Bartimaeus was sitting by the roadside and begging. And so notice this story starts in this, this city, the city of Jericho. And Jericho, we know, is not only the lowest city in the world, it is that, it's actually 846 feet below sea level, it is the lowest city in the world, which I think is significant, but more than that, it's also, at least historically in the Bible, was considered one of the most sinful cities in the world. Uh, you remember, if you grew up, right, in Sunday school, you probably had it on the felt board, right? Like Joshua and the Israelites, they march into Jericho, they blow the trumpets and the walls come tumbling down. And then Joshua, we don't talk about this that often, but Joshua, in a prayer to God, prays that God would curse the entire city of Jericho and anybody who ever tried to establish life in that city. And so this is a place in the Bible known as a city of sin. It's a low city. It's a sinful city. And the symbolism here is meant to be clear. What Mark wants you to see as you think about blind Bartimaeus is the reality that all sin blinds. Sin keeps us from seeing God and seeing others and seeing ourselves as we should. It turns reality on its head. It distorts the truth. And as a, as a result, sin always leaves us in a place that is dark and dangerous. That's what's happening right here in this text with blind Bartimaeus. And notice in verse 47, while he's sitting by the roadside begging, it says, he hears that Jesus is coming through Nazareth. And so he begins to shout, son of David, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so what Bartimaeus realizes is the reality that I can't heal myself. I can't fix myself. I can't solve this problem that is causing so much pain in my life. And listen, if you've ever gone through a 12-step program, and I know there are many in here who really have, what you learn is that this is the first step to healing. It is to admitting I have a problem. It is to admitting I have an issue that I cannot control. I am powerless and I need someone, a higher power beyond me to change what I cannot change. And that's where Bartimaeus is right here. This is a man who has come to the end of his rope. He is a man who Jesus uh, says in, in Matthew chapter 5 is poor in spirit. He is a man who is needy. 
He is a man who realizes, I cannot heal myself. And in a moment of faith, it's so beautiful. He surrenders himself to Jesus, the one who alone can transform his life from the inside out. As I thought about this story in Mark 10, I thought about my favorite Marvel movie. I've shared this before, but Doctor Strange. I love Doctor Strange. If you've ever seen the very first installment of the Doctor Strange movies, right, you know that Doctor Strange was, his backstory is he was once a neurosurgeon, and he was the best of the best of the best. He was wealthy. He had all the cars. He had all the women. He had the nice condominium. I mean, his life was as it should be, but then he has a wreck, if you remember, that, that basically renders his hands useless. And because his identity was in his work, like it is for a lot of men, Right? He just doesn't know who he is anymore. He's like, I, I can't not have hands that work. And so he begins to spend all this money and go to all these different kind of therapists and try all these different things to fix his hands. And eventually he, he gets desperate. He travels all the way to Nepal. While he's in Nepal, he shows up with his rational and scientific mind. He still thinks, I can control my healing. I can fix myself. But then, in a really incredible scene in the movie, he's invited into a whole different reality. He is invited to leave everything he knows at the door to open himself up to a whole new dimension where he can finally experience the transformation that he is longing for. And in this scene, the person who's working with him, she looks at him and she says this. It's one of my favorite quotes from the movie. She says, you cannot beat a river into submission. You have to surrender to its current. Your intellect is taking you this far in life, but it will take you no further. Surrender. Silence your ego, then you'll be transformed. Then you'll walk in a whole new reality. Guys, that's what's happening right here with Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus has silenced his ego. He doesn't care what anybody else around him thinks about him. He has come to this place where he realizes, I need a power beyond myself. And he surrenders to this power in order to receive the healing that he needs. And as a result, right, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But notice what happens. In verse 48, many, it says, begin to rebuke him and told him, be quiet. You realize that's what happens when you take your weakness to the world. The world is not a safe space for wounded sinners. The world will kick you when you're down. Or at least be nice to your face and talk bad about you behind your back. The world is a place, just so you know, that you need to conceal your weaknesses. You need to conceal your, conceal your failures and flaws because if you do not, it will absolutely be used against you. And that is one of the reasons that we are so passionate about as a church creating a space for wounded sinners. We're not just trying to create some sort of religious social club where we check a box and we leave. Like This is something that we all need. We need a space where we can take off the mask. We need a space where we can be honest about the fact that though I look really good on the outside, maybe I'm really hurting on the inside. That we can come with our best and biggest sins and know that when we confess those, that we're not going to be met with condemnation, but with compassion. And this is exactly what we see happening right here with Bartimaeus when he meets Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Everyone says, be quiet, shut up. But he shouts all the more in verse 48. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That I love this next line in verse 49. Look what happens. It says, and Jesus stopped. Jesus, son of God, 
the one who is sent to this earth to save sinners like you and me. Jesus is on his way in this story, think about this, to Jerusalem. And do you know what awaits him in Jerusalem? The cross. And so Jesus is walking to Jerusalem through this crowd. And on his mind is the reality that, okay, I'm about to do exactly what I was sent here to do, to take on the very wrath of God for sins. To die an excruciating death for sinners. And while he has this on his mind with Jerusalem in front of him and the busyness and the importance of his life and what's going on that day, he hears this blind beggar call his name. And he stops. And in verse 49, he says, call him. The word that is used here for call is the Greek word ecclesia. It's where we get our English word for church. The word we use for church is the Greek word ecclesia. It means called out of the world and into a relationship with Christ. And that's what's happening here. He's calling him out of this world and into a relationship with him. And I love this next line, verse 49. It says, so they called the blind man and they said to him, cheer up. Why would you say cheer up? Because the real Jesus brings joy to your life. If you have the religious Jesus, you don't know joy. If you have a counterfeit Jesus, you don't know joy. If you have the real Jesus, you have real joy. You have something worth cheering up about. No matter how bad it gets in the world around us. Cheer up. Get on your feet. He's calling you. And in verse 50, it says, throwing his cloak aside. And we know, according to Paul in Ephesians 4, this is symbolic of him throwing off his old life. Throwing off the grave clothes, so to speak. Throwing off the old identity. Throwing off the old way of being. Throwing off the sin. He jumps to his feet. says he comes to Jesus. And so notice, by the way, the energy this man now has. Notice the life and the excitement and the vigor this man has. Let me say something to you. Listen. Sin is really fun for a season. But if you stay in it long enough, it will depress you. It absolutely will rob you of your confidence. It will rob you of your energy. It will beat you down. Sin not only blinds you, it binds you. It robs you of the freedom and the fulfillment that you are longing for. And guess what? That's really bad news for you and me because we're all sinners. But you don't know what the good news is? The Bible says that Jesus is a friend of sinners. And rather than rubbing our face in our sin, he frees us from our sin. He came to this earth for the very reason of doing for us what we could never do for ourselves, which is to provide us the salvation and the healing that we could never obtain in our own power. This man comes, and he's now standing before Jesus. He throws off his cloak. Here he is. He doesn't see him, but he knows he's in front of him. And Jesus asks this question. It's kind of a bizarre question, but it's an important question. He looks at him and he says, hey, what do you want me to do for you? Think about that. Jesus is all-knowing. He can see the guy's blind. If I'm a disciple, I'm like, what do you think he wants you to do for you? Why'd you ask that? Just heal the man, Jesus. And let's get going. 
back to our, you know, regularly scheduled day. What do you want me to do for you? Why does Jesus ask that question? Well, it's not because he doesn't know. He asks that question because what he wants to happen in this moment is he wants this man to vocalize his deepest desire. He wants this man to say out loud, here, Jesus, is what I want the most. I'm trying to ask you this morning, if Jesus was to stand in front of you right now and he was to ask you this question, what do you want me to do for you? How would you respond? It's not a very easy question to answer, is it? Jesus, I want all the money in the world. Is that what would make you happy? Jesus, I want you to, to heal me, to take away all the pain in my life, the physical pain. Jesus, I want you to make my kids incredibly successful. Like, Jesus, I want you to make me incredibly popular. Like, like, how would you answer? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus, here he's calling out this man's deepest desire. And that is why this man responds the way he does. He knows the reason he's poor. The reason he doesn't have any clothes, the reason he doesn't have any money, the reason that he's an outcast is because he's blind. That's his biggest issue. And so he responds to Jesus in verse 51. He says, Rabbi, teacher, I want to see. I want to see. And in verse 52, Jesus says, go. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight, and he followed Jesus along the road. And so notice, he doesn't just grab a little miracle and sneak off. He doesn't say, thumbs up, Lord. I'm out. He follows Jesus. So important that you get that because, listen, when you read the Bible, one thing is clear. Jesus did not come to make converts. He came to make disciples. He did not come just to give you heaven in the next life. He came so that you could reorient all of everything around him in this life. Because he knows that he is ultimately what you need to be happy, to be fulfilled. See, I love that we have all these baptisms. We've had more baptisms this year than any other year in our church's history, which is awesome. And we celebrate that. But you realize baptism is just the starting point. Jesus doesn't just want us to follow him into the waters. He wants us to follow him every day of our lives. And that's what we see right here with Bartimaeus. And it, it's, notice, by the way, nobody has to convince him to do this. This is why I'm so passionate. You hear us, uh, one of our slogans we've said over the years, and it sounds really cute and all that, but it's, it's, it's true. It comes from my own personal testimony is, is, is we say the crossing is a place where the real you can meet the real Jesus. Why do we say that? Because there's a lot of people in the city, including some of us in the room, including me at times, who are being fake. And there are a whole lot of people who have settled for a Jesus that is fake. A religious Jesus who's not the real Jesus. And it's why so many of us are bored with him. We're disenchanted with Christianity. Like realize when your eyes are open to the real Jesus, nobody has to prod you alone and make you follow after Jesus. Because you realize when you see Jesus as a realist, he's not a ticket just to get you out of hell. He's a treasure chest worth giving up everything in order to have. Bartimaeus, I ain't going anywhere. I'm following you. I know better than that. I know where that leads me. So he reorients everything around Jesus. He doesn't just have his eyes healed. He has his heart healed. 
He doesn't just get a physical healing. He has a spiritual healing here. Everything is transformed. His whole life now has a new trajectory. And the reason this story is so powerful is because I believe this is a picture of what Jesus wants to do in the life of every single person in this room today. Does Jesus want to bring physical healing? Absolutely, he does. And if you're a Christian, listen, he will heal you one day. It may not be in this life. I promise you he'll heal you in the next life. Everything will be healed. But more than that, more important than that, he doesn't just want to bring about physical healing. He wants to bring about spiritual healing. What we said last week, and it's worth repeating again, Jesus wants to bring complete and total healing to your darkest sins and your deepest wounds. And in his infinite wisdom, what I'm about to say is going to be one of the craziest things you're going to hear all week. In his infinite wisdom, one of the greatest ways that Jesus wants to accomplish that kind of healing today is through his church. That will blow your mind if you begin to believe it. That through ordinary people like you and me, in the power of the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that enabled Jesus to heal the people he healed, that same spirit has been given to us to live likewise. Though we are wounded sinners, we are to be wounded healers. Paul says... Think about this. In Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 3, Ephesians 4, 5, Colossians 1. Do you know what he calls the church? He calls the church the body of Christ. What that means is that it is the church, in the church, that we should, if the church is being the church that Jesus wants us to be, it is the place where you will experience healing in a real and tangible way. And again, not just physical healing, sometimes physical healing. We've seen God physically. I've seen God personally. Some of you have. Heal people on the spot physically. Great, good. Better than that, spiritual healing, emotional healing, relational healing. The church is the place that should be happening regularly because the church is the body of Christ. And because we want to see this go from being a dream and this little bitty spiritual like Sunday morning talk to being a reality, we are encouraging everybody all over again, and this is nothing new in our church. It's been around for 11 years, but we're making a big push all over again because I feel like we've kind of gotten a little bit, um, we've not made this a priority, so we're wanting to now make it a priority again. Over the next three weeks, last week, this week, and this coming week, we really want to encourage you to get involved in the DNA. And the DNA, as we said last week, is three to four men or three to four women that are committed to three things, to discover, to nurture, and to act to discover, to get below the surface, to stop focusing on the 10% of the iceberg that everybody else sees and judges, focus on the 90% that actually does most of the damage in our life relationally. Let's drop below the surface, let's discover, let's nurture one another, like we're talking about today, and then let's apply what we're hearing from God through the scriptures and the church. Application, by the way, this is so important, I'll say this, and I don't want to preach the sermon for next week, but do you realize information does not equal transformation? Like, do you realize, like, nothing is going to be any different about your life at all if you just got information today and didn't apply anything we talked about? Information does not equal transformation. The application of information equals transformation. And DNA is the places we learn how to do that. Now, we talked about discover last week. We'll talk about the application part next week. But what about the, dis uh, the nurture piece? How do we do this? Like practically, like how do we become this community of healing? 
And for the sake of trying to be super practical, I hate sermons that, you know, where it's like we, we like fire each other up and like, let's be like loving. It's like, how do I do that? And like, I don't know. Figure it out. You'll get it. You know, like, like I, I want to be very practical with you. I want to show you like this is what I, I think this looks like. And I want to show you three things that's straight out of this text. And this will be quick. But there's three things we see right here in Mark 10 that if we want to be a, a safe space for wounded sinners, we need to do three things if we're going to create a community of healing, especially within the context of a DNA. And here's those three things. We need to listen well. We need to ask good questions. And we need to point people to Jesus. I want to say a short word on each of these. First off, if we're going to be a community of healing, we need to listen well. Notice again in our story that before this man was healed, he was heard. In verse 49, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And though everyone else tells the man to shut up, Jesus, rather than ignoring his cries, it says he stopped. He heard this man calling out to him. And therefore, before anything else transpired, that means that Jesus first listened. And this is no small thing. Theologian David Augsburger says this, Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person they are almost indistinguishable. Think about that. What he's saying is listening and loving go hand in hand. And listen, if that's true, if we're going to see people transformed by the love of Jesus, we have to start listening to people like Jesus. We have to learn how to slow down to close our mouth, and to listen attentively to what someone else has to say. And if you're like, I don't know, like where do we see that at outside of here? Well, there's a lot of places. Go do a quick Google search today on the importance of listening in the Bible. Here's just one verse. This is James chapter 1, verse 19. James says, my dear brothers and sisters, why does James refer to the church as brothers and sisters? Because the church is a what? Family. It's a family. Dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. I'll tell you, that's one of the most convicting verses in the world for an extroverted pastor who speaks for a living. At least twice this week that I can recall, my wife said, and I quote, I really wish you would let me finish a sentence. She probably said it more than that, but I really wasn't listening. So, <laughs> Apparently, um, in my wife's mind, that just because you take a breath, it doesn't mean that you're finished talking. So uh, who would have thought, you know? This is a hard one for me. Because I got answers you need. <laughs> Even if you don't ask for them. If you would just stop talking, you're going to be so amazed by what I say next. And this isn't just a problem for me. I read an article this past week online that said our society as a whole has been uh, now referred to as the tail society, society where we're so quick to control a conversation or to convince someone that we're right that we never close our mouths long enough to listen to what the other person has to say, especially if they're on the other side of us or they disagree with us. And if that's where you are, listen, like, no condemnation from me, but if we are going to love others well, if we're going to create a safe space for wounded sinners to receive healing, we have to make it our goal in conversations. Listen to this. 
We have to make it our goal in conversations not to be interesting, but to be interested. Not all of us can be interesting. Most of us aren't as interesting as we think we are. Um, We can't all be interesting, but we can all be interested. We can all practice what Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to as the ministry of listening. Whenever he was training seminary students during uh, the height of the Nazi empire, he was trying to train them how to, to resist the Nazi empire and stay faithful to Christ. He said, the very first thing you've got to learn, men, is the practice or the ministry of listening. You've got to slow down. You've got to put away distractions. And you've got to give people undivided attention. That's the first thing. Secondly, if we're going to be a community of healing, not only do we need to listen well, But we need to ask the right questions. Again, in verse 51, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, clearly this man, right, again, like Jesus knows what he needs. But what is he doing? He's pulling out this man's deepest desires. In other words, he's getting at the man's heart. And that is what all good questions do. Good questions focus on, again, what is below the surface. What's actually going on in the heart. And so in the context of a DNA, just really simple. Here's what I want to encourage you guys to do. We talked about this last week. Do your feeling check-ins. You offer up that advice. Here's what's going on inside of my heart. And then if you want to ask questions about that, you can ask questions that, that help them identify what is it that you really want? What is your deepest desire in this moment with your spouse or your kids or, or at work or with your finances or whatever it may be? It doesn't have to be hard questions. Just say, like, yeah, what, what's, what's your deepest desire here? What's the main thing that you want? And then after someone expresses themselves, here's what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you just to steal this line from Jesus. I don't think he would mind if you do this. But after someone gets done talking in the context of a DNA, I would ask them the same question. What do you want me to do for you? When's the last time somebody asked you that question? How meaningful would that be? Rather than someone telling you, here's what I'm going to do for you. If someone just said, hey, what would you like me to do for you? How can I serve you? What do you what's, the, what's the biggest thing you need from me right now? And then just let them tell you. We have to ask good questions that get to the heart of the issue. And then finally, not only do we need to listen well and ask good questions, after that's done, we make sure that we point people to Jesus. In verse 52, Jesus says to him, Go, your faith has healed you. Your faith in who? It's faith in Jesus. Guys, this is not a story about self-help. This man was healed because he knew who Jesus was. He said, Jesus, son of David. What does that mean? Well, in this context, what he's saying is, I know who you are. You're the long-awaited Messiah. You're the one who's ascended down from David's line to come and do for us, broken people, what we could never do for ourselves, which is to give us the salvation and the healing that we desperately need because of the results of living in a world that has been devastated by sin. And it is in this moment this man is healed. He's healed not because he's a good guy, not because he deserves it. He's healed because of his faith in Christ, the one who alone can heal us. And so if our DNAs are going to be little communities of healing, a safe space for wounded sinners, we must listen well, ask good questions, and ultimately, after we've done those two things, we point people to Jesus. And to be clear, by the way, I want to say this, just this is important. Pointing people to Jesus doesn't mean you throw a, a Bible verse at them. What I mean when I say pull people to Jesus is, is hold out for people, hey, here's who Jesus is. Here's what he's done for you. And now, this is how it changes who you are and how you're called to live. 
That's how we point people to Jesus. Jesus says, and this is so important. I know we live in a, in a world where truth is subjective, and, and when somebody said it, uh, I, don't know if it was, I think it was Mia said it in her testimony, right? Like, I can just do what I want, when I want, whatever feels good, like, right, as long as I'm not hurting anybody. Like, I understand that's the world that we're living in. That's what we're all tempted to do. But, like, we need Jesus. And Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And so if you need to know where to go, Jesus says, look to me. If you need to know, like, like what is truth, Jesus says, look to me. If you need to find life, deep life, full life, he says, look to me. And so when we are in a DNA, guys, as a community, we need to continually point people to Jesus to say, hey, brother, hey, sister, I just want to remind you today, this is who Jesus is, this is what he's done for you, and this is how it changes who you now are and how you're called to live as his sons and daughters. And I cannot, guys, express to you how important this is. I was with our... Um, I was with our unwanted men's group on Tuesday morning. And you guys, if you've been in our church, you know about this. It's one of my favorite things we do. In my mind, it sums up everything kind of the crossing is about. But we have, right now, uh, 26 men who are showing up every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. to work through unwanted sexual behavior. And it's, 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 it's been great. It's been great. In my mind, it's been great. And um, this past week, we're sitting in the room. And, you know, usually we break up in groups. We'll kind of all come together first and... And, and I said, hey, guys, I want you to do, do this. And you can maybe even do this right now in your mind. That would be a helpful exercise for you. Think about the last thing you did that brought you a lot of shame. Don't say it out loud. And now ask yourself this question. How did you talk to yourself when you did that thing? And, and I said, share that with me. Don't share what you did, but just share with me about what you said to yourself. And here is just some of the the comments I got back, and I'm not going to tell you who said what or whatever. So if you're in this room, you're like, oh, God, where's he going with this? One guy said, the voice that I hear in my head is, you are a blanking idiot. Another guy said, you're a phony. You're not a real Christian. You're a screw-up. You're a terrible parent. If you were a better parent, your kids would all be following Jesus by now. One guy actually said, what I said to myself or the voice I heard in my head is, the world would be so much better without you. And then here's what I encouraged them to do. I said, now imagine if your son or your daughter did that thing that you're so ashamed of. Or if you're not, you don't have kids, think of someone who you have a lot of compassion and empathy towards. How would you talk to that person if they would have done that thing? And, and here was the messages I heard back. Oh, I'd tell, I'd tell them you're loved. But there's nothing you can do to make me love you any less. I'd tell them I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to leave you. I'd say everybody makes mistakes. I'd say, hey, this thing right here, it doesn't define who you are. Notice how different those messages are. Now let me ask you this. Which message do you think sounds more like the message that Jesus would give to a sinner? Yeah. Is it a message of condemnation or is it a message of compassion? If you don't know the answer, if you're a Christian, it's always a message of compassion. In Romans 8, 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't care what you have done this week. I can promise you this. If you're in Christ, Jesus is not condemning you. He's not. And yet, is this not the voice that we hear most often? The voice of condemnation. And guys, that's why we need this so bad. 
That is why we need communities of healing that are listening, asking good questions, and pointing to Jesus. And so with all that being said, here's the next step. If you're not in a DNA, get in a DNA. And if, you know, you want to know how do I get in a DNA, if you're in a missional community, I'd start there. I'd go to your missional community, and I would say to the guys, hey, is everybody here in a DNA? If you're already meeting, can I join yours? Or if you're not, like, let's get it together. Like, be a leader. Like, you step out and get it going. Right? And if you're not in a missional community, like, how do I get in a DNA? Boom, there it is on the screen. Crossingparagol.com forward slash DNA. Go there. There's a form you can fill out. I'm interested in being in a DNA. Here's the times I can meet, all that kind of stuff. And Daniel will reach out to you this week or it's a short week, maybe the week after, and he will help you get plugged into a DNA. What you will also find on that link, in that link, on that link, however you say it, is a digital version of this. We do have physical copies. This is a DNA guide. The physical copies are on the welcome table out in the foyer. Grab this, read this before you meet. Everything we're talking about in this series, discover, nurture, apply, it all talks about it right in here. It even tells you, hey, here's how you can structure your DNA meeting to be the most effective meeting as possible. And so grab the book, get involved in the DNA. And listen, I, I get this, and I'm going to go ahead and bring the band up here. I know some of you, when you hear that, like you can immediately think of 10 reasons for why you should not do this. And my guess is, and this brings a lot of sadness to my heart, but my guess is that one of the top reasons some of you don't want to do this is because you tried something similar and you got hurt. You got burnt. You tried to share something inside that you thought was safe to share with somebody else and it got held against you. And I just want to say, like, if that's where you are, I'm very sorry. But listen to this. As my friend, and, and he's an author, he's a mentor, Rich Plass says in his book, Relational So, though relationships are the place that we are hurt, it is only in relationships that we are healed. Guys, when I read this Bible, I do not see an option for isolation. Like, I don't think that's an option. If you're here today and you've been hurt, you're struggling with some of the same unwanted behavior, you've got wounds, you've got sins, like, like listen, those things don't just go away on their own. And you cannot just deal with them by yourself. And if you think you can, you're going to have a really hard time with what the Bible says about you. Because it says the complete opposite. And I know this is risky, but what's the alternative? Like, the call today is to take the risk. And I think for some of you what that means is maybe for the, for the first time, for some of you, you need to, to, to take what's going to feel like a risk, take the step of faith into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Some of you in here are so concerned about what everyone's going to think of you. And can I just tell you something? Most of these people in this room probably aren't even going to be at your funeral. People are going to come and go in your life. And we're so worried about impressing people who in the end, honestly, like aren't even going to be around that long. And you're going to risk eternity for the sake of that. My hope is that for some of you, man, that you would become like blind Bartimaeus. That you would realize, man, I am needy. That, that I have needy nothing apart from Jesus. There's no boasting in me. Nobody swaggers into the kingdom of God. Nobody. 
if we're here today and we're a member of this church, we're part of the kingdom of God, it is only because we have first said, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Take that step of faith today. Trust in Jesus. Admit that you need him. Come to find out, it's crazy. The only thing that God really needs from you is your neediness. Just admit, I need you, Jesus. And if you're here today and you've already done that, the step for you, the next step is step into community. Step deeper into community. Make yourself known in the context of these DNAs. And give it some time, guys. Nobody changes overnight. Some of you are like, I did the DNA thing. I tried it for three months. It didn't work. You've got stuff in your life that's been going back for more than three months. Some of you guys have generational sins. That stuff just takes a while. Give yourself some grace and give everybody else some grace. Everyone's trying. Let's just try together. Let's just continue to limp towards Jesus together. And if we do that, I believe we're going to produce a fruit. And it's going to allow us and others to taste and see how good Jesus really is. It's going to be good for us and it's going to be glorifying to him. With that, I'm going to invite our uh, communion team to go ahead and come forward. We're going to take a moment of responding to the message through communion, through singing, through giving, if you're a part of this church, and through praying. I believe we have a prayer team, Jonathan and Sarah. I would encourage you to participate in all these things. And if you're a Christian, we'd invite you to come participate in communion. If you're not a Christian, it's not that we're trying to close that door to you. It's just this doesn't mean anything to you. I don't even know if that bread probably came from Walmart. I'm not really sure. There's nothing special. It did come from Walmart. Okay. There's nothing special about the bread and the juice in and of themselves. By taking it, God's not going to forgive you of some sin or that, that you need forgiven of or answer some prayer or heal you of some disease. Like for us as Christians, this is a sign of hope though. We take this as we remember when we tear off the piece of bread that Jesus lived a perfect sinless life that none of us could ever live. And when it's dipped in the juice, remember that he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And so if you want to participate in this, as someone who's already trusted in Christ, come and participate. If you want, there's a gluten-free option back there in the corner for you. It's a uh, self-serve table back there that the elements are in in a cup. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, don't receive this, receive Jesus. But if you are a Christian, come and, and, and receive this. Also, we have the prayer team back here in the corner. Guys, prayer, we really want to create a culture of prayer in our church. A posture of humility. God blesses a posture of humility. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Grace, grace always, always, always runs downhill. Always. Going and asking for prayer is a sign of humility. I'll be up here to pray if you want. They can be back there to pray. And if you're a part of our church, we encourage you to give. Everything we're able to do is only because of the donations and the giving of other people. And so it's another way that we worship God. Say, so everything you've given us, I just want to give back a portion of you. And then we'll sing and be dismissed. With that, let's stand together. I'll pray and we'll respond. Father, I thank you so much for those who are in this room today. I thank you for those who might be listening online. I pray that right now, that Jesus, right now, open the eyes of the blind. Maybe it's the religious man who's been in church their whole life and does not have a relationship with you. Maybe it's the woman who has been used and abused, who feels she's worthless. Maybe it's the guy who just looked at porn even this morning right before he came here. Maybe, God, whoever it is, I pray right now, open their eyes and see Jesus, you as you really are. 
And I pray that as we respond to you today, however we need to, that you would just remind us afresh, Jesus, of the good news of the gospel and that we would truly become a community of healing, not just here within these walls, but throughout our entire city. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.